Welcome to Sports with Chris Roll. I am Chris Roll, and I am here to talk about sports. On today's show, the illogical way we choose to discuss the quarterback position. I understand why we have a tendency to gravitate towards the quarterback position and bestow the powers of God upon it. I understand because that is how my love for the NFL began back in the mid-90s when Brett Favre is winning the MVP in three consecutive years, 1995, 1996, 1997. He is the most electric player in football at that time. I am... 10 years old, and I'm looking for a team. And my aunt and uncle are living in Wisconsin, and they ship me out a cheese head. And the combination of those two things sent me over the edge. So now I'm watching Brett Favre all the time, and I'm wearing a cheese head, not just when the games were taking place, but around town. I was a very strange lad, and still somewhat strange in present day. But I was way into cheese heads, and I'd wear them around. And it combined with Brett Favre to really strengthen my Packers fandom at the time, because Brett Favre was and is the definition of a gun-slinging quarterback. No throw is impossible. At the peak of his powers, which again is this three-year window, I always felt like no matter what the defense was doing, Favre could just throw a hole through a defender's chest and complete a pass. doesn't matter what they were doing. They had the perfect scheme or the best pass rusher, these, oh, the safety and the cornerback, the double coverage. It didn't matter in my mind at the time said, this quarterback can do anything. He's just going to throw a pass so incredibly perfect that the Packers can always come out on top. So during this little three-year window, um, the best stretch of Favre's career as an individual and from a team standpoint, the best stretch of Favre's career with the Packers, Green Bay appears in three straight NFC title games. They win one Super Bowl in 96. They beat the Patriots. Famous, iconic image of Favre running around the field after he throws a long touchdown pass to Andre Risen. His helmet's off, it's in his hand, and he's just screaming, and it's really cool. And then the following year, another Super Bowl appearance, uh, but this time a loss. So, again, this is how my love for football and the NFL is started. The quarterback of my favorite team, He's the best player in football at that time. And I view the sport through that lens. Quarterback position is the be-all, end-all. It's what matters. And this transitioned over time uh, in a way that, as I talk about it with casual fans and watch the way that the media covers it, it maybe hasn't transitioned to my liking. Because over the course of the next 23-ish years, uh, I start to realize how complex the football equation is and how despite being the most important player on the field, the quarterback still has a relatively small say in who wins and who loses. I'm a firm believer in this. People who listen to this show, you know. Uh, I'll always talk about the complexity of of football and what goes into the outcome of a game. It's not two plus two equals four. It's long form calculus. These scrawled out equations on the wall that take up the whole chalkboard. 
So there's a moment at the end of this run with Favre that, that I think this idea begins to percolate in my mind. It's January 1998. It's the final game of this really incredible three-year stretch for Favre and the Packers. They make the Super Bowl, and who awaits? The Denver Broncos. And it's Favre at the peak of his powers. Three-time MVP, defending Super Bowl champion team. And on the other sideline, Denver Broncos, a team that had not won a Super Bowl at that time, with a quarterback in John Elway who was fading. It was the end of his career. That's how the natural progression of time works. You rise, you peak, then you fall. So Elway is at the end. It's the second to last season of his career. He's on the significant downslope of his career. Elway, who at his peak, brought the exact same stuff that Favre brought to the table. One of the best quarterbacks of all time and a gunslinger in every sense. An immaculate arm that could make every possible throw. This is an Elway at the time, however, in January of 1998. And the Broncos end up winning the game. Crushes me, little cheesehead man sitting on the couch. Oh, no. Now I'm going to be embarrassed wearing this cheesehead around town in a way that I never was before, strangely enough. But it was a cool story if you could zoom out and look at the grander picture. Quarterback who had never won a Super Bowl, team who had never won a Super Bowl, breaking through right at the tail end of his career. And this is how it was posited at the time. Um, obviously, I'm bummed out for the Packers, but I was really weirded out by how the game was covered by the media and how it was talked about amongst football fans. It was Elway over Favre, this quarterback triumphing over another quarterback. So at the time, I thought it was weird. And that narrative has really ingrained itself in our minds as time has gone on. If you ask people about that Super Bowl, they go, oh yeah, it's the LA Super Bowl. First Super Bowl win, beat Favre, all that kind of stuff. Uh, which is strange because in that game, John Elway goes 12 for 22 for 123 yards. He throws for no touchdowns. He throws for one interception. He does rush for one touchdown on the ground, that famous helicopter play at the goal line. The story of the game is probably not John Elway's performance, uh, which I realized at the time, which I realize even more prominently now that I think in a lot different of terms than I did at, at this time when I was 12. Real story of the game on the Packers side, it was about mistakes. It was the Packers turning the ball over three times. They lose two fumbles. Favre throws one pick. Packers as a team commit nine penalties. It's really hard to win a game when you turn it over three times and have nine penalties. And on the other side, it was about Denver doing what they did that entire season, what they did the next season when they repeated as Super Bowl champs and beat Atlanta in the Super Bowl. It's about them utilizing the most devastating rushing offense in football at the time and the best tailback, Terrell Davis. Mike Shanahan, zone read scheme, great offensive line. Give it to Terrell Davis a bunch of times and let him feast. And in that game, he does. 30 carries, 157 yards, and three touchdowns. It's pretty easy to understand the story of the game. It was pretty easy to understand it then. It's easy to understand it now just by simply looking at the box score. You don't even have to watch the game, although if you do, you would get the exact same sense. Man, the Packers really struggled to contain Terrell Davis because that dude's good, and Denver blocked really well for him. And on the other side, they just they committed a lot of errors. So I thought that this way of interpreting a game by the media and by fans 
would improve over time. And yet here we are, 23 years later, doing the same thing left and right. Football is not a complex equation. It is just simple, clear-cut, black and white, what quarterback won, what quarterback lost. It's my greatest source of consternation. The inability or the unwillingness for a lot of people to talk about football games and the outcome with the nuance that it deserves. Again, remember, it's a really complex equation. Think of the chalkboard filled with algebra, with calculus. A lot goes into a game that we can't even comprehend, and all of the stuff that we can, that I talk about a lot on this show, the whole 53-man active roster and three phases of the game and coaching and refereeing and weather, all that kind of stuff, what we can comprehend many times is pure insanity. I've referenced last year's Super Bowl so many times that you all are probably sick of it, but I'm going to beat a dead horse into a ground because it really illustrates my frustrations with this aspect of how football can be consumed and discussed. Buccaneers win the Super Bowl. What's the narrative? Tom Brady, another Super Bowl. He's the GOAT. He's the best quarterback ever. Consummate winner. Just everywhere he goes, he's going to win because he's so much better at playing quarterback than other quarterbacks. This was weird as it was happening. This is weird because we still talk about it in those terms in present day because the story of the game in the Super Bowl and actually the story of the game in the playoffs, especially the last three games as Buccaneers beat the Saints and the Packers and the Chiefs, the story of those games and especially in the Super Bowl. It was physical annihilation in the trenches behind the best combination of lines in football. Devastating offensive line and a devastating defensive line who controlled all three of those teams and just obliterated the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl. Mahomes runs for his life, and on offense, he just pounded on Kansas City all game. That was the story of those games to me, because I watched them, and I try to be fair, and I go, this really isn't matching up in my mind with the way that people talk about what is going on within these games. Tom Brady beat Drew Brees. Tom Brady beat Aaron Rodgers. Tom Brady beat Patrick Mahomes. The clear-cut terms that First Take will show us in Undisputed and all these other shows that are just grasping for things to talk about. Michael Jordan and LeBron, let's argue about it for the next 55 years. So I realized that the position of quarterback is important. That's, That's obvious. But the position of quarterback is not everything. It's far from it, actually. You get a sense of this when you watch even one football game. You get a sense of it. I don't care about the Heisman Trophy anymore. I don't care about awards in general because I've come to understand that you can create an award out of thin air and pretend like it means something, and then it does, magically. And then... You are the one in charge of determining who this person is that wins the award, and you're just pulling a rabbit out of a hat. That's what I've come to understand awards are because I've been a part of the process in my professional life. So I don't care about who wins the Heisman Trophy anymore, but if I did, I would be very passionate about what's going on in this year's race. Another area that I think illustrates 
my source of frustration with the way that football is consumed. Bryce Young is going to win the Heisman Trophy. He is the quarterback at Alabama. He's a really good quarterback. He's one of the best in the nation. He also had the added bonus of saving his best performance of the season for the final game of the season. The SEC Championship against Georgia. The best defense in the nation. So much better than every other defense that it was kind of shocking. And Bryce Young burned them to the ground. Alabama scores 41 points. Young throws for 400 plus yards. Really awesome performance from him. Again, one of the best quarterbacks in the nation. This is copy directly from the Heisman Trophy. The Heisman Memorial Trophy is awarded annually to the most outstanding player in college football. The most outstanding player in college football. Okay, put that in your mind. If you've followed college football closely this year, and I have, you know that Bryce Young is not the most outstanding player on his own team. Weird that you could win the Heisman Trophy and not be the most outstanding player on your own team. Uh, If you followed this college football season and this Alabama team, you know that defensive end Will Anderson is the most outstanding player on Alabama. I don't think there's any debate about that. He's having one of the best seasons for a defender in recent memory. In my opinion, the best defensive season that I've watched since 2009 in Sue. Unfortunately, Will Anderson has the millstone around his neck of being a defender. Uh, And a defender is not looked at in the same terms as a quarterback. And granted, a defender cannot impact a game to the same level that a quarterback can. However, we're talking about the Heisman Trophy. We're talking about this is an award awarded to the most outstanding player. Well, then you start to see there's a little bit of problem with this logic, with the way that this award is handed out, with the way that we think about football and we think about individual players within this complex equation. Going into the SEC title game, Will Anderson on the year had 85 tackles, 14 and a half sacks, and 29 and a half tackles for loss. Those are incredible numbers. And for reference, I pulled stats from the combination of the other two best defenders in football, widely acknowledged by everybody. Defensive end, Aiden Hutchinson of Michigan. He's going to be a top five draft pick. And interior defender, Jordan Davis for Georgia. Widely acknowledged as the other two best defenders in football. Okay, So going into the SEC championship game, the combination of those two players had 78 tackles, 15 sacks, and 18 tackles for loss. So it's not to say that Will Anderson is twice as good as these other two incredible players, Hutchinson and Davis, but you get a sense of just what kind of season Will Anderson has pieced together. His statistics are better than the combination of the other two best defenders in football, both defensive linemen. So now, my my hopes and dreams of 
the Heisman electorate treating football like it should be treated, like it is, the complex equation. That's long been dead because I've just kind of given up on the matter as it pertains to the Heisman electorate. In their minds, the the most outstanding player, it's always going to be quarterback on a really good team, and, and if not a quarterback, at the very least, an offensive skill player on a really good team. Just look at the history of it. Since 2006, you either need to be a quarterback or you need to be an Alabama skill position player. Those are the only people who've won. Devontae Smith, wide out. He wins last year for Alabama. Derrick Henry, Mark Ingram, two really good tailbacks for Alabama. They both won. Every other year since 2006, it's quarterback. Now, again, I don't care who wins the Heisman. I don't even... It doesn't register on my emotional radar. I don't really even bother to care or think about it anymore. But why I bring it up today, why we are thinking about it for this show, is because I think it's relevant in what it illustrates. It illustrates that a lot of people who are supposed to think about football on a higher scale than a casual fan, they're supposed to comprehend the calculus, and not treat it like simple addition. Instead, we see a lot of those people thinking exactly like a casual fan. They're writing two plus two on the chalkboard equals four and then going home and going to bed. Quarterback is the only thing that matters. You see that reflected within these votes. Now, because of all this, And because I'm a weird person who cares about sports, this is this has turned me into a person who who says one of my duties in life is to point out how strange this is. How we can take the outcome of a game and craft narratives many times retroactively, especially as years go on, that are not rooted in reality, that do not match up with what I watched that do not match up with the numbers contained within a box score that do not match up with my understanding of football is a really complex equation. I'm thinking about this on Monday night as I'm watching the Buffalo Bills host the New England Patriots. Great AFC East battle, two teams vying for the top of the conference. As it turned out, it was a perfect time for me to record an episode about Bill Belichick being the master of the specific tailored-to-the-opponent game plan. That was the show earlier this week, and I talked a lot about his ability to do that and how he does that, how he understands everything, in this case, opponent tendencies and rules, and really, in this case, how weather is going to be a factor and crafting the best strategy for success within any individual game. Monday night, you could not create a nastier day for throwing the football. It was Buffalo weather to the maximum degree. We have wind gusts up to 55 miles an hour. They're so intense that it's affecting punters dropping the ball to their foot, this one-foot window. That's how intense this wind is. It's, It's affecting quarterbacks pitching the ball to their running back on toss sweeps. Just really simple things that we take for granted because the weather's never this aggressive. But Monday night, it is. So now you have a new 
thing thrown into the equation. Oh, wow. I don't know if we've ever played a game in 55 mile an hour wind. So what what, what are we going to do? Well, Belichick and New England, they assess the situation, and what does he determine? He goes, we're not going to throw. We're not going to put the ball in position where the wind can affect it. We are going to do that as little as possible. We're going to lean into our identity. As I talked about on the show earlier this week, we are a physical football team. Let's rock and roll. Physical on both sides of the ball in a game that it's just played in the mud, played in the wind, it's going to favor us. Let's lean into it. So under center in this game, the Patriots have Mac Jones, rookie quarterback out of Alabama. He is the presumed favorite for rookie of the year. Mac Jones, he's been a very serviceable quarterback for New England as they've really caught fire the last month and a half and risen to the top of the AFC. But Mac Jones... He has uh, he has skills and he has other areas that you would identify as weaknesses. And Belichick is just good at understanding his own team's weaknesses and saying, we don't want to put you in position where you will hurt our team with that weakness. He takes note of the situation and says, Mac Jones, for all the good that he does, he's got a pop gun of an arm. Not known for arm strength. His game is short, precise passes. He's not going to stretch you a lot downfield. He's not going to make Josh Allen-style throws. He wants to just pick you apart methodically and surgically uh, within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. You can't do that in a game with 55 miles an hour, 55 mile an hour wins. And they don't. Mac Jones in a game that the New England Patriots win. He goes two for three for 19 yards. Two for three for 19 yards. That's not me misspeaking. The Patriots in that game run 49 total plays on offense. 46 of those are runs. There's a bunch of incredible screenshots that come out of the game where Buffalo has nine men at the line of scrimmage. Just, I mean, condensed right at the line of scrimmage. Not like within the box as we know it, not within the extended box. I'm talking nine men on a goal line defense on a first and 10 play at midfield. Really unreal. It was kind of surreal watching it because you're just seeing football played in a way that you never see it played in present day like you're watching a 1945 Army Notre Dame game. Now, we have a quarterback who throws three times for 19 yards. We have a team that wins with that quarterback under center. And I don't want to sit here and go, Mac Jones is terrible. Everybody should, you know, acknowledge that he's not good at quarterback and that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm trying to say. I always want to make note of this because sometimes people, they'll say, you're raining on this quarterback's parade. Why, why do you think he's so bad? And I go, that's not what I'm saying. I think this moment is a perfect illustration of what I want to talk about. That quarterback is one piece of a really complex equation. Now, coming out of the game, I'm a little bit frustrated. And I've been frustrated as New England has gone on this run because while Mac Jones seems like a very competent quarterback, a big push in narrative coming from fans and media that is really frustrating for me to listen to is how Matt Jones has clearly separated himself from other rookie quarterbacks in this class, especially Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson and Justin Fields. How much better Mac Jones, the individual, is performing than these other quarterbacks? And can you believe that these teams whiffed and let Mac Jones fall to the New England Patriots 
and oh my gosh, they must be tossing and turning in their sleep. And can you believe that these guys and they got the physical tool sets? Yeah, Lawrence and Wilson and Fields, they seem like they have more physical ability than Mac Jones, but they're not as good at playing quarterback. You know, it's the, the proof is in the pudding. Look at these teams' records. And I hear that coming off of the heels of a three-pass performance that ended in a win. And I go, well, of course he is going to perform better on a team scale. He's on a good team. (laughs) He was drafted by the best coach ever. He's surrounded by a team that has a lot of talent who can win a football game that he throws three passes in. What are we even talking about here? If we flipped roles, which I always like to do, does anybody really think we would be sitting here gushing about how much better Mac Jones is than these other quarterbacks if he had been drafted by the Bears and was saddled with Matt Nagy and this elementary offense? Or if he was drafted by the Jaguars? And was coached by Urban Meyer, who's probably right now in a bar feeling up some woman? And definitely not crafting a game plan that would allow his team to win in a game that the quarterback throws three passes? Or if he had been drafted and was saddled with the general incompetence of the New York Jets franchise, and especially that rickety offensive line that got Zach Wilson injured earlier this year, do we really think we would be here sitting and talking about this? This is where I think we separate from what is taking place and craft narratives that I don't think reflect what I'm watching. What I'm watching is Mac Jones. I'm very impressed by how competent of a quarterback he is, especially as a rookie. But more importantly, what he is being asked to do by a team that really puts him in position to succeed. Common theme of this show. Situation is everything. So I'm watching this take place. And my mind starts wandering. And I go, this is pretty familiar. Rookie quarterback on New England. Who was asked to do the bare minimum. To not commit egregious mistakes. And to let the entire equation be realized seems familiar and I'm going to go down another path even though I know that it is hearsay to talk about Tom Brady in a manner other than he is a winner he is the ultimate winner he makes everyone win he's the best ever he's the best quarterback don't even think and talk about anything else I know it's hearsay I mean we have a Tom Brady produced documentary documentary right now about Tom Brady that's expounding upon that exact narrative. Tom Brady is the ultimate winner. Uh, quarterback as the be-all, end-all. I see a lot of similarities going on right now with what's happening with Mac Jones and what happened in Tom Brady's rookie season. Brady starts 14 games that season, 2001. Patriots go 11-3 in those games. Brady, for the regular season, 
He averages 189 yards per game passing. He throws 18 touchdowns against 12 interceptions. You would never look at those numbers and go, man, this guy is just dragging his team to victory. You would never in a million years do that. En route to the Super Bowl that year. The Patriots beat the Raiders, they beat the Steelers, they beat the Rams in the Super Bowl. En route to their first Super Bowl championship, the first of many. Uh, the famous tuck game against Oakland, 16-13 New England victory. Brady doesn't throw for a touchdown, he throws one pick. Against Pittsburgh in the AFC title game, he throws for 115 yards, no touchdowns, no picks. He actually gets injured in that game. And the Patriots bring in Drew Bledsoe, who is his backup now. They don't miss a beat. And they go on to win that game with Bledsoe under center. And in the Super Bowl, a game that for many spawned this, this legend of not just the winningest quarterback of all time, which that is true. That is reality. He's won more than any quarterback ever. But it, it jump-started this narrative that he is the best quarterback ever. He plays the position better than anyone ever, which I definitely do not think is rooted in reality. The game that jumpstarts this narrative that now we're seeing the first episode of Man in the Arena come out and it's all about. Beating the Rams in that game, Tom Brady throws for 145 yards, one touchdown, and no interceptions. I watched all of this in real time. I actually was quite into the run. I thought it was a really cool story. Patriots had not won a Super Bowl. They played a brand of football that I really, really enjoy. Cerebral, defensive. On offense, they were very limited because they just didn't have the pop. They didn't have the playmakers to do things. They didn't have the pop under center with Brady to go and score 40 points. They did not possess that capacity in a way that as Brady improved and really... I think by 2007 would be the year that I, I point at and go, that's when he really turned into a really, really high-level quarterback. That wasn't the case at the time. It was the baby deer out there walking around trying not to fall down. I watched all this in real time. I understand it now in present day, 20 years later, and I find it strange how this is talked about. Because if I'm crafting a narrative for that run... I would ask all of you to think what seems more rooted in reality. Is it that Brady is a winner and he willed his team to victory, cut and dry, two plus two equals four, stop talking about it. Or is it that the complex equation that is football was mastered to the extent it can be mastered by Belichick and by the Patriots defense? And that even when you master that equation, to the extent it can be mastered, you still need a bunch of breaks in order to go your way, in order to win. And during this run, that would be the tuck game. That would be the interpretation of a referee on what constitutes a fumble, a play that would have ended the game in the season. And, and I would point at Adam Vinatieri making two incredible field goals in that game in a blinding snowstorm. One to force overtime, one to win it, and then kicking the game-winning field goal to beat the Rams with no time on the clock. Those are the breaks of the game that you need in order to win. Kickers don't matter until they do. There's a lot of quarterbacks who have sad, sad tales about putting their team in position to win. 
and their kicker misses a field goal, and suddenly the quarterback is the person who is answering for why he played poorly. So which of those seems more rooted in reality? That's what I ask people to think about. And maybe you come up with a different a different answer. And that's your right, you know. Everybody has a different brain. I'm not saying I have the answers to everything. But I do believe that when you engage with football as a complex equation, at the very least you start to be able to understand, oh, maybe quarterback is not the be all end all that we make it out to be. Maybe the way that we bestow the powers of God upon this position, maybe that's not matching up with what I'm watching. Even though this stuff never ends on the television, on conversations with your casual fan. This is the way that we still think and talk about football and the position. It's the majority of football consumption. We'll end with the guy that New England beat in Brady's last Super Bowl win with the franchise. Jared Goff, the opposing quarterback in the Super Bowl for the 2018 season. An interesting examination that, again, I think really illustrates what I'm talking about. In that season, 2018, three years ago, a mere three years ago, the Rams go 13-3. and Jared Goff throws for 293 yards per game. He averages 8.4 yards per attempt. He throws 32 touchdowns to 12 interceptions. Those are really good numbers across the board. All of those. Every single team would sign up immediately for those numbers on our center. Now, even with that, and the, the offense is churning and the defense has got playmakers, even with that, You still need incredible breaks to make the Super Bowl. Stuff you cannot control. For the Rams this year, that would be pass interference, no call against the New Orleans Saints in the NFC title game. A play that if called correctly, blatant pass interference right at the goal line would give the Saints, in my estimation, estimation, I would say a a 95% chance of winning that game. Instead, it is not called actually such an egregious no call that the following year the nfl is compelled to institute instant replay for pass interference calls that's how egregious this play was it's not called saints kick a field goal to force overtime instead of scoring a touchdown to win in overtime drew Brees hit interception greg zerline another break of the game he still got a kick a 12 mile long field goal that he drills if he misses it the saints have the ball at midfield and they got to get 15 yards to get into field goal range and win. Instead, he makes it. So now Jared Goff, yeah, hi, hi, great. Jared Goff, you played great. Your team won. You're in the Super Bowl. That offseason, based upon this season-long performance, he signs a four-year, $134 million extension with the Rams. Interesting to note, because we're talking about the team that's there with him every single day. And even that team was susceptible to believing something that really in retrospect, does not match up with the reality of what was taking place. So the Rams go to the Super Bowl. And who awaits? Bill Belichick. And what does Bill Belichick identify? The smartest mind in the history of this sport. 
He says, this quarterback over there is a creation of his offense. He is a creation of his play caller, Sean McVay. I'm going to craft a specific game plan that is designed to expose the weaknesses of Jared Goff. Weaknesses that we now so clearly understand in present day. A lot of which stem from this particular game plan and this particular game. Belichick says, Jared Goff has an inability to make his own pre- and post-snap reads in a manner that is not even like really good, but just even competent. We don't think he can do that. The best quarterbacks in the game, they're savants at this. Rodgers, Brady, people like that. Pre- and post-snap, these guys' minds are just matrix-level computers, spitting out the numbers. And Jared Goff was the other side of the equation. It's the 1970 computer that weighs 600 pounds and prints out this sheet of paper 12 feet long to tell you hello in the morning. That's what Belichick's saying. He goes, now, this is a weakness. Maybe it hasn't been exposed to the truest extent, but we don't think he can make his own reads pre- and post-snap. His mind is not fit for this position. We also think that he has a shocking inability to perform under pressure. Now, this is true for all quarterbacks. Your performance is going to dip if you're under pressure constantly. Ask Patrick Mahomes last year in the Super Bowl. But Belichick said, Jared Goff really, really cannot perform under pressure. Not just because he's not that mobile, but because of the mental side of the game. We don't think he is going to be able to quickly and accurately think on the fly. As our defense is moving, as the pass rush is coming, and he's got to get rid of the ball, we don't think he can do that. So Belichick and the Patriots, they craft their game plan. They're lining up in fronts they have not played in all year. Similar theme to that 91 Super Bowl that I talked about earlier this week. They're playing all sorts of new coverages. They're reshaping their secondary. They're playing this safety over here and this cornerback over here. They're doing anything they possibly can to make Jared Goff think, both before the snap as they're moving around and lining up and shifting, and post-snap. As soon as the play starts, and now they're, this linebacker's running over here, and this safety's going over here, and what you thought was this simple coverage is suddenly something completely different that you have not seen on film. Anything to make him think. On passing downs, when New England knows for a fact that they got to drop back and throw, which was not a strength of their offense at this time, they wanted to get in play action, they wanted to run Gurley and run action passes off that, so you had to respect both in equal measure. And then they're dictating the terms. Instead, on passing downs, Belichick and the Patriots, they go, ooh, all right. We're going to create a lot of exotic fronts. We're going to bring some different blitz packages. Stuff that makes him think, but then also stuff that is going to be able to generate pressure and make him not only think, but perform under a constant pass rush. That's the game plan. It's executed to perfection. Again, since that game, the light bulb flicked on for the rest of the league, and they go, oh, we're all dumb as hell. Somehow this Rams offense ran through us and just feasted this entire 2018 season, and we just needed Belichick to play them to understand how to break their rules and their tendencies. The game's a disaster for Goff. It's a disaster for McVay as the play caller. The Rams score three points. For Goff specifically as we talk about the quarterback position and the way that he was discussed at the time, the way he's discussed now. It's interesting to make note. Since then, it's been a downhill spiral. 
that sees him traded to Detroit in the offseason, where now even his own coach, Dan Campbell, is bashing on his performance every game. And three years later, three years is not a lot of time. Three years later, we are all in agreement. Talking heads, diehard fans, casual fans, we're all in agreement that Jared Goff is one of the worst starting quarterbacks in football. Interesting to make note of. So, as as we tie this all together and just look at this all-encompassing sphere uh, of quarterback discourse, as we look back at this game where Jared Goff, who is being talked about as this is a great quarterback, it's awesome, where he face-planted. And on the other side, New England and Tom Brady, that offense, they were able to win, scoring a meager 13 points. It was not a good offensive performance by any means, either for Brady as an individual or for New England as an offense. They scored 13 points. So we look back at that game. Tell me what the reality was. Something that I felt as I watched the game and afterwards, which did not match up with the way that it was talked about by fans and by media, and the thing that I still feel the exact same way right now in present day, three years later. What was the reality of that game? Was it a game that was all about the quarterbacks? And another sign that Brady is the ultimate winner. Ah, look, Brady, he won again. He just drags his team to victory everywhere. And he completely derailed the career of Jared Goff. Tom Brady did because he beat him and he showed how much better of a quarterback he was than Jared Goff. Is that the reality? Or is it another example of what I believe? That football is a complex equation. And despite what first take or undisputed any other bullshit TV programming would have you believe, despite that, the quarterback position might not be the be-all, end-all we make it out to be. Thank you for listening to Sports with Chris Rawl. If you have any themes you would like me to explore or would like to contact me and connect in any way, please email me at chris at ceo.com. Again, thanks for listening.